0: Welcome to this episode of The One. This is part two of a conversation on Sikh resistance movements that I had with uh, Sukhraj Singh. And you can listen to the first half, uh, which was from last week, on the website or in your feed. Uh, And I do recommend listening to that first. I'd also like to say that today we'll be talking about a few things, including the Khalistan Sangarish or resistance movement that stemmed out of uh, events leading up to and happening in uh, 1984 that we discussed in the first episode, which would, I think, give a good backdrop to um, this story. I also want to say that this is meant to be a very sort of preliminary um Introductory discussion about it. It's an incredibly complex issue, but um, yeah, please have a listen to this today. Think about it. Offer your perspectives, and keep in mind that um, we're doing this just as a service and as a from a perspective of our desire to learn and our desire to share that learning, and invite any and all uh, contributions to this conversation. Um, but, uh, yeah, please uh, take take this episode totally in good faith. Um, and if you find something in it that you disagree with or you feel like is a misunderstanding or a mischaracterization on either mine or Sukhraj's part about this issue, please, uh, you know, communicate with us, uh, tweet at us, um, etc. And we all I ask is that it's in a way that's constructive um, because ultimately we all want the same thing which is justice uh, not only for all six in the world but any and all otherized downtrodden groups of people which to me is the underlying purpose of the Sikh uh, thought and movement from its inception Um, thanks again and hope you enjoy the show
1: It's really important that we, I think, unintentionally, the way this article was structured, I start to realize this that not only was it a timeline, this article, the way I structured it, but it kind of really it lays out the foundations of where we move in a post colonial setting. So, everything up, up until now that we've mentioned is pre independence India, so it was under the British Raj, right. And the next segment of the article is dedicated to Khalistan and the Karlistan right? Sangarash meaning the struggle. And this is really interesting because this is this leads on to exactly what you were just talking about. So in terms of, you know, intersectionality, solidarity and where do we stand? And it doesn't matter who, what your identity is, as long as your source is liberation and truth for justice. Um, Where do we stand? And
2: And when you say soch, what do you mean?
1: uh, um, The the school of thought in terms of where you stand on that position of justice and anti-oppression, you know. Um, And those limits, what you just described, really get tested when we start to see the post-colonial political integration of India, which is really one big mess right now, right? But in a post-1945 setting and in India that we see today, how closely do we identify ourselves as Indian? Because there are a lot of people that are very critical of British policies, American policies, Israeli policies. But if they are, are quote-unquote Indian themselves, they don't criticize their own home state, the Indian state. So there will be a lot of six that say, hey, look, don't criticize India. We're, you know, we're still developing, we're still, you know, we're still doing what we can, and we're relatively really progressive. But the entire framework of the Indian state is oppressive um, to a lot of communities that don't subscribe to a Brahmanical school of thought, you know, that don't subscribe to a quote unquote Hindustan. And so that really pushes the boundaries now. When we start to get on sick resistance, because there is no discussion on sick resistance without a discussion on the Khalistan Singh, and, and the struggle here is the determination of Sikh sovereignty in response and against the agitation of the Indian state. And the discussion on Khalistan, yeah, you know, in the in the words of Azad v. Singh, is the most talked about topic, but arguably the least understood. And in all honesty, my position somewhat reflects this statement. Because what I mean by this is that I understand Khalistan through a very limited lens. I have a limited understanding, a limited experience, and a limited value to add to that discussion. And funnily enough, when I had the pleasure of writing the article on sick resistance for Consented Magazine, I had a limited word count. And so when I constructed the skeleton for the the article, I had to include Khalistan. But there was no way I could summarise the Laird, the Khalistan movement in 500 words. And so this in itself is a huge limitation. So in essence, I made the attempt to lay out the oppressive dynamic between the Indian state and the Sikh populace, as, as well as illustrate the Sikh demands via the Anantabha Sai Resolution. And and just before I read out the passage that we wrote on that, um, I think it's really important to understand why we call it resistance. You know why is it not civil liberties? Why is it not mm. why is it not common sense? Why is it not self defence? And it right. really makes you um, makes you really kind of realise that the only contextual framework that resistance exists is against a capitalist one and a national one, nationalist one. Mm. Because we don't, you know, why is it not civil liberties? Why is it not civil, called a civil war? Why is it not human rights? But it's called resistance because it's framed by the state as such that we are pushing the bounds of reason and rationale to the point where we are considered extremists. And right. um, that's the level of critical choices of words that we choose and that have chosen for us. And so, I mean, it can so easily just be like, oh, you know, Khalistan is a human rights issue, issue. Oh, it's a it's a civil liberties one. It's uh, it's, it's it's common sense that we are opposing oppressive legislation or homogenization by the Indian state, but it's called resistance for a reason. And I only find that the word resistance exists in a capitalist and a nationalist framework of oppression. Uh, that's something I just considered myself. I don't know if you agree with that, but it's really it's really it's really important because even when even when you're Challenging a police officer arresting you. You know, what is that? What do they call it? What do they call it?
2: Resisting arrest. They they don't
1: call it common sense. They don't call it a natural reaction. They don't call it self defense. They don't call it uh, civil liberties. They call it resisting arrest. You know, you resist arrest. You resist a force that is so called just. Right? And it kind of puts you in a position where you feel like you are being someone that you ought not to be. And all of a sudden your position is wrong and the onus of proof and justification is on you, not the state, not the oppressor. So I think we, we really need to have a radical shift in the words we choose as well. And that's what I picked up a lot on when I was writing for Khalistan. I was like, well, this is not, this is not only a, this is a resistance movement. Sure, it's against the nation state, but in so many other thing, ways, is it something else? You know, it's a human rights movement. It's a civil liberties one. It's one of self-determination. And so um, resistance is really, de- uh, st- is it dogma- no, stigmatized, I would say.
0: Yes. Uh,
2: just well, on that same. Similarly, the word radical exactly. is uh, is stigmatized, whereas, you know, radical has to do with, I believe the root word is, is ratus, which I think means like root in Greek. And the idea is is that, you know, ra- radicalism exists in opposition to being reactionary. Uh, ra- ra- reactionary thought is 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 the police state, is militarism, right? It's it's you you know a problem exists. You create a negative law to resist that problem, at least nominally, and then the the solution to that problem is, in the American context, you know, you look at say uh, drug. Uh, the drug war, right? Um, you know, you have a, a the the use of substances that have can have like a detrimental effect on the society, um, and uh, so in, in in response to that, the reactionary response is, oh, you just make drugs illegal. Um, and then that
1: And we'll have a will have a heavy hand on the law exactly. to enforce them.
2: And 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 so then it's like, well, it's illegal, so and and the reason, quote, you know, the, the nominal reason for the illegality of the substance is the um, diminishing of the problem of this substance that it creates, but it does absolutely nothing to actually solve the root reasons of why people might be engaging in uses of that substance or over engaging in the use of a substance and how that substance is negatively impacting uh uh, the society And, and so there's no radical root level examination it's just a reactionary response and that's that is you know what what we live in so so i think that yeah radical and resistance are words that have absolutely been stigmatized and even you know, resistance has not only been stigmatized, but in a weird way, it's also been hyper normalized now with um, the hashtag resistance movement in the United States, which is sort of the, the sort of the trendy uh, social media um, resistance by centrist uh, Democrats and Republicans who, you know, quote unquote, are, are in resistance to Trump. But there's no radical resistance. It's just a nominal one where they just hate him. And they hate how disgusting he is, you know, justifiably. But there isn't like a deeper radical understanding of how, say, a Trump came into existence through a, a, you know, a repetitive cyclical pattern that is created by design uh, in the form of the um, the state and, and, and the way that, you know, U.S. politics and government works. Right. So. So, yeah, radicalism is just about root. Uh, solutions to problems, but it's been turned into this violent uh, idea. Yeah, to
1: be honest, uh, what you mentioned before about people just make it really trendy on social media and say, oh, hashtag resistance. For me, uh, the measure of resistance is correlated with the measure of detriment. And, you know, and when you've got six that are being imprisoned and they're being beaten and they have no interest whatsoever to acknowledge the authority. And they do it to the point where they give up their lives. That's the, that's the greatest like Shahidi that you can do for the movement, right? Uh, If you compare the civil rights movements of the fifties and sixties, where people are being executed by the FBI, lots of black activists are going missing, they're being exiled into Cuba and Colombia and, you know, Um, and and Algeria, and you've got US citizens living in exile, they're being murdered and they're being tortured, they're being massively incarcerated. Those things truly come to a detriment of a people because they're actually having sanctions imposed on them. People that just sit down and hashtag and complain and make social media campaigns, those are just really, quote, state-friendly, right? There's something that the state... Uh, uh, admisses you to do it's 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 uh, uh, per- sorry permits you to do it 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 doesn't respond to it because it doesn't agitate the state now resistance is about agitation it's about unsettling okay block the highways or the state will come with the police and say don't block the highways what kind of re- what kind of protest is this do it later don't block the highways you're upsetting my journey to get to work etc x y and z well we're gonna do something that. Comes to the detriment of the state, and we're going to do something that comes to, as a as a as a proportional measure to disrupt your proceedings. You know, just because you know the state wants you to make petitions, the state wants you to do organised marches in compliance with legislation and stuff like that because it says okay look you can have your space you can but you could you've got to do it on a certain day at a certain time and it has to be policed and you have to give us notice oh you can do a petition but it has to reach this many numbers and we'll only promise a debate after that and nothing more you know we don't want to upset the status quo resistance is about disrupting how the oppressors operate more importantly how the state operates and you'll start to see how unfriendly and friendly opposition that can become and And Kalistan is a prime example of that
2: and i'll I'll just can I brief tangent before we get we go into that? yeah um it, because you brought up the civil rights movement uh and the extrajudicial killing of civil rights and arresting et cetera of of activists um and you also we look at the infiltration of you know the Black panthers and other uh black liberation movements that were operating particularly on like leftist uh ideas Mm -hmm. you know i mean even the most sort of tame uh uh uh, you know not tame but to in any ways to put him down but you know nonviolent. of you know dr martin luther king is is a social you know he identifies himself as a democratic socialist um you look at uh 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 uh, you know uh, stokely carmichael and and other You know, black liberation activists that are identifying with um, you know socialist ideas, et cetera, et cetera, and they're very, very hostile towards the military and police state, right? Um, And 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 they were infiltrated by domestic surveillance by uh, government um, agencies and and disrupted in that way, and we we have documentation of that, right? So last night I went to see Black Panther the the new movie that just came out and as just like in and of itself, I loved it it was fun it was you know obviously amazing special effects the sort of the root message of a lot of it you know was about kind of uh, resisting uh, the te- the desire the tendency to create divisions among uh, people along like racial and gender lines and stuff like that and to resist sort of conservative, forces of like white supremacy and patriarchy and stuff like that. Those are themes that I I read into that film. But the one ally of Wakanda who is a white guy and is American is a member, is a freaking CIA agent. And to me, and he's like a totally like uncontroversial, like good guy in the movie and there's no comment on the fact that he's from the CIA uh it even references like kind of tangentially references like american black liberation movements and the and the killing of those people it never ever invokes any kind of like uh critical like view of the CIA agent right and so that is something that really just came to the fore of my mind of this sort of again, like this sort of like hip hip sort of approach to resistance and 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 liberation that, you know, sort of just like washes over any uh this obviously horrible uh history that the the CIA and Black Liberation movements have. Um and also the fact that that the character is called Black Panther, but at, you know, and the Black Panthers were anti-hierarchical socialist uh, resistance movement that, and, and the Black Panther is a king of a super hierarchical system in which he lives. So there's a lot of great. I liked about that film, not to turn this whole episode into review, Black Panther. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, you know it it's it's worth talk mentioning in the context of this is that just because something is is good in a lot of ways representative is is um you know making a generally good statement these types of sort of oversights and sort of washing away of the, the more radical aspects of, of these histories and movements and whatnot is, is something to be mindful of and, and skeptical now, if, of.
1: And there's no better time to mention what you just said, actually, especially in the sick context. And the entire choices that we make as a sick nation is whether we comply or whether we resist. Right. Um, and a, like a perfect campaign that just sums this up completely is the sick values are american values campaign Mm, as you know it's like look if you want to make the um, distinction or sorry the the similarity if you want to draw the similarities between sick values and american values for me that would be really tough i probably couldn't feel i don't know maybe an inch of paper, you know. And I write really big. And my handwriting's huge, right? And I, I wouldn't fill that paper up because, like, again... It's... You
2: have the writing of a four-year-old. You cannot spell.
1: <laughs> no, I just write so cursively. <laughs> like, I, I really have a huge S and I break in my paragraph like that. And then I lose it lines. I couldn't I couldn't do that. I, cu- I couldn't even think. Because, again, sick values transcend nationhood, uh, especially... American imperialism, you know, the entire oppressive framework of white Europeans um, making uh, exiling native Indians, enforcing genocides, and stipulating treaties and legislation that actually don't hold any leverage according to the native population. Like, no, no, it's just a huge, huge genocidal project, right? The Mm. American nation state. Um, Yes. And what they do, it's it's just how can you possibly align that with sick values and why would you want to? But that's the key question. Why would you want to? Now, in this setting where there's a lot of hate crime, because that's where this video has emerged from, okay? They say that, look, sicks are being... Taken as uh, mistaken identities and being considered Muslims when actually we're not. So, hmm, how do we respond to that? Oh, I know. Let's make it clear that we're not Muslims. And, <laughs> and, but there is an underlying theme there. And that's because they want to be humanized in the American image. They want yes. to humanize themselves and say, hey, I'm human but I'm going to sidestep the dehumanization that you impose on me, right? And I'm going to align myself with your nation's thought. I will pledge my allegiance to your national anthem. I will say that my faith's values are identical to yours, right? And a mathematical term for that is injective, as in injective meaning there's a one-to-one mapping of my values and your values, right? Mm. Um, And it's really odd that, that kind of strikes me and obviously as you just mentioned it's not about identity because these guys will rock the bug they'll rock the star, they'll rock the Dari and the Karpan and the sick Rup Guru's Rup they'll rock it because they want to stand by American flags you know when you've got the Dastar and the bug wrapped in the American flag it makes me want to just regurgitate yeah, what I ate yeah. three weeks ago you know like nothing
2: <laughs> deep not even, regurgitation yeah yeah yeah
1: like every <laughs> inch of it and I think to myself like this is this is national assimilation right
2: yeah yeah
1: but the discussion on Khalistan is, is highly relevant to that it's the discussion on Khalistan is is not an isolated discussion it's prevalent throughout and it's one thing it has in common with every uh resistant movement you know with palestine and israel with kashmir and india with the Tibetanese in China, with the Australian Aboriginals and um, the white colonizers from Europe, in
2: every. Burjava and the Kurds.
1: Yes, keep going. Like the, every aspect of this, Khalistan is a, is no different from that discussion. And it's, it's that post colonial political integration project that we're facing. And that has consequences. And that comes back to. Um, Antonio Gramsci's concept of hegemony and Mm. cultural hegemony and how the nation state operates to enforce that hegemony. I'll tell you, I'll I'll just quickly go a little bit off topic but I'll explain that in the British context you know the the state tries so hard so so hard and I'm talking pumping millions and excusing so much just to make the state function and, 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 and manufacture some sort of culture like in the uk uh there's a there's an event it's called carnival notting hill it's in central london but yeah uh, and it's a big it's a big celebration and there's a lot of police there and it costs the taxpayers some money right for that event and it happens once a year but every single year the largest discussion that takes place is why this event should be banned because it's it's dangerous. There's too many people in one place. Um, right. It causes it causes uh, there's crimes and and it causes too much policing and it costs the taxpayer too much. Now this event happens one evening, uh, sorry, one during the day, at one day a year, and that's it. Right, mm. and it upsets the large majority of the nation. And they get so upset, they cause their petitions, they say, we're going to shut down this event, we're going to relocate it to make it safer, you know. And and it's largely a black event, right? Yep. But the, the attitude of the country is 100%, almost 100% against it.
2: Mm. However,
1: however, now see that event there, tens of thousands of people, tens of thousands of police, hundreds of thousands of streets being filled, traffic and... Think about that on a large scale every single weekend, twice a week at least. Yeah, across the whole country, up and down. What is taking place? A football match.
2: Yeah, I knew you were going to say that exactly.
1: Hundreds of thousands of fans in stadiums up and down the country are you know, millions if you count it together. Every weekend, pubs being filled, um, drunks uh, celebrating hooliganism. You've got the streets filled, you've got police just. The cells being filled with football fans uh, you've got major traffic being, and congestion yeah. being caused across the central city and nation cities and, and you think to yourself this is causing a huge disruption every mm-hmm. single weekend every single weekend no doubt some days weekdays depending on the match fixtures right and it causes a huge amount of policing but the state excuses it because it enforces a national culture and national identity, and it makes the country feel as if it's one identity of it under the British flag, right? And the ima- and that's exactly what the national anthem does in America as well. You know, stand for the flag, stand for the flag. Right. And they actually bring, there's a debate now of whether or not they should bring the national anthem to the UK. And, mm. you know, in India, they're playing the national anthem when you attend the cinema, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this idea of nationhood is the key central topic of the, the discussion on Khalistan. And I'm just going to quickly go over what we wrote. Is that okay?
2: Yeah, please. Okay,
1: sure. Okay. So again, this is really important because a lot of people will say, oh, you know, are you Indian or are you anti-British? And I'm like, hey, I could be anti-British and anti-Indian, right? So this right. is really important. This is a post-Ajit Singh discussion. So... Following the resistance to British rule in a post-colonial setting, the structure of oppression six were and continue to be compelled to actively resist is the newly formed Indian state and the consequential hegemonic policies that are associated with nation building, what I just mentioned earlier. This includes the ultranational assimilation to Hindutha ideology of common language, religion, and culture, in addition to relinquishing sovereignty to central government. The Sikh resistance to this is characterised by the Khalistan Sangarsh, which continues to contest the oppressive apparatus of the Brahmanical Indian state. So Indian nationalism played an effective role in the anti-colonial movement as a unified liberation front against the British occupation. However, at a more local level, the peripheral territories such as Punjab, Kashmir, Manipur, Mizoram, Tamil Nadu and Sri Lanka and others have been at constant conflict with the the decisions made by central government throughout the post-colonial political integration of India. Moreover, the Sangarsha or Struggle is not exclusively regional in nature, but also a linguistic and religious contention against the ruling Brahmin elite class of India. For instance, faiths such as Sikhs, Jain or Buddhist religions are classified as denominations of Hinduism under Article 25B Part 2 of the Constitution. The BJP administration continues to press for Hindi to be marked as the national language of India on the basis that it's the official language of the Union under the Article 343 subsection 1 of the Constitution. Further, the Punjabi borders have been reconstructed several times, reducing the size, thus the political capacity of the state. See the Punjab Reorganisation Act 1966. So this dynamic here, the struggle for self-determination of the Sikh against the rising nationalism of the Indian state, is the framework that manifests an order of resistance to exist and is similarly found in the aforementioned territories. So to better understand the Sikh resistance, it's important to take a closer look at Sikh demands and critically frame the discussion against the backdrop of national hegemony. A f- key frame of reference on this topic is the Anant Bursab Resolution, okay, otherwise known as the ASR, issued by the Shermoni Akali in nineteen seventy three. So the ASR was composed of 12 resolutions that largely addressed the marginalization of Sikhs and other other minorities by the Indian state with respect to religious, economic, political and democratic freedoms. In resolution number three, there are constant calls for social and economic justice concerning labor rights, wealth inequality and Indian plutocracy. Resolution number 4 addresses the subjugation of the Punjabi language. Resolution number 5 demands reparations for the refugees of Jammu and Kashmir post-partition. Resolution number 8 is an appeal for higher wages of the poor and labouring classes. And resolution number 12 aims to redress the redistribution of the Ravi Bias rivers in Punjab. And in short, the announcement resolution is a statement that demands the devolution of the Indian state in favour of the regional and national minorities. There is a much greater discussion to be had on Khalistan and the Sikh resistance to the Indian nationhood as it's the most current and pertinent to the Sikh struggle. Now what can we take away from this? What we take away from this is that India is trying to form a national identity right? and it comes at the cost of assimilation and a kind of a reductionist one of the sick group and the sick psyche you know where and this is identity politics this is what is it, what is a sick what is a sick's position under the indian state and when when operations took place you know there's so much that built up the events of 1984 that what i mentioned what i quoted once was that you know in in never forgetting 1984, we've forgotten so many other years that led up to it, right? Because, you know, like I said, 1966, the uh, Punjab Reorganisation Act, 1971, I'm sorry, 1973, the Anand Prasad Resolution, there were, 1982, the Asian Games, like there was so much that built up to the struggle of the Khalistan movement, especially in 1986 with the Sarbat Khalsa, you know, when you laid the foundations for the Khalistan six sovereign state, that you start to realize that on a global context, this is not an isolated instance. You know, as I mentioned with the Palestinian struggle in post-1947, Israel, India, uh, became newly formed states around the same time. Um, And what does it mean for smaller communities that are wanting to achieve their self-determination? Because that's the ultimate battle between nationhood and self-determination. We have the American state and the native population and, and African Americans and the black population of uh, America that are there um, in Canada also we have Quebec that wants to become its own separatist state You know, this is a white province one of the largest white province in Canada that wants se- to be separatist, right? we've got California now that are looking to be separatist from the United States of America um, we've got um, we had recently in 2011 we had South Sudan form as a state because of its separatist uh, movements and, and, and what you tend to find is that the media, media and the propaganda against the discussion on Khalistan is largely to say hey you guys are just extremists and you're pushing the bounds of reason and you're just asking for something unreasonable and therefore you should quit right but in the pursuit of justice there is no there is no limitation on that
2: so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of going on here and, and it's um you know some different ideas and thoughts that come to my mind when we're t- thinking about these things is you know going back to Ajit Singh um, Aj- you know we're talking about a post Ajit Singh world and, and one of the things that uh, he he was very cognizant of at the time uh, and he actually mentions in his autobiography is he is con- conscious of this sectarian sort of uh, rise of Hindu nationalism, um, and ostensibly I, I would I would you know he doesn't talk about for example like the Singh Sabha uh, particularly, but he does mention uh, he talks about the arya Samaj. And and other voluntary groups that he refers to more generally, he refers to them as these groups. So ostensibly, if you're referring to Adyasamaj, Adyasamaj was this sort of uh, originally it started as this sort of like Hindu almost reformist um, kind of uh, uh, school or, or or you know voluntary group that was very much doing w- this sort of um, injective. Uh, process of melding Hindu ideas and looking at them, I think, through the lens of people that had been uh, educated not only in traditional realms but also in the realms of uh, British missionary schools and and what you'd call as you know enlightenment or liberal um, schools of thought. So, and there were also Sikhs and Muslims that were all going through these different uh, voluntary groups and these different forms of education that were being filtered through this Occidental um, kind of Eurocentric uh, Abrahamic um, enlightenment sort of view of religion. And in order to, I think for these elites that were most very often very, Much So elites people that came from wealthy families and high castes, though not always across religious boundaries were engaging with these um, elite forms of education, as well as um, these these schools of thinking that were starting to create these more defined separate religious like sectarian groups and boundaries. Whereas if you look at sort of pre-partition or pre-colonial, uh, Punjabi society, there is, especially like especially Punjabi society and Sikh society, there is this very like syncretic understanding of um, these different spiritual philosophies as being able to like cohabitate and and intermix, like even so much so that. For example, if you read, if we read uh, Guru Gobind Singh, the tenth uh, Guru, there's this great um, like document that is was was hand transcribed by I believe by Mani Singh um, in the presence of Guru Gobind Singh, who's receiving a bunch of questions from Sahajdhari six. Sikh. Sahajdhati six are six that retain. Um, like let's say that they're they're from like a Hindu or a Muslim family, but they come into contact with Sikh thought, and they um, incorporate and and identify with Sikh thought as sort of a root under root sort of uh, foundation for their approach to the social and spiritual world. Right? They don't. They wouldn't necessarily renounce. Their traditional family beliefs, such like whether it was practicing <clears throat> namaz, like um, you know Muslim prayer, or um, you know uh, what's the word, venerating like Sufi saints, um, or 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 doing pujas to uh, Hindu um, cosmological figures, uh, and having some of these these practices that are traditions to them, they didn't all, these are Sahajdari Sikhs. They're people that didn't necessarily take on the external uh, identity of like a long uncut hair and turban. They didn't go through baptism. They didn't enter the Khalsa initiation. And in this document, they're asking Guru Gobind Singh very directly, like after the creation of Khalsa, now like, you know, sort of what is, is what what do you know? How do we um, fit into all of this? And he was very clear. He said, you know, if you have these practices that belong to these other um, traditions that you're a part of, your foundational practice is the Sikh one, and your but but continue to do these these other rites as you see fit. Basically, giving leaving it up to the judgment of individuals to to kind of you know flow naturally into their relationship with being with Sikh thought um and he even you know they ask him about you know now that you said the kalsa for example they don't cut their hair like what about us and 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 he talks about like even self-grooming and styling and stuff like that in the context of these people he talks about marriage rights he says that look if you're if you're You know from if you have these the sikh perspective and you have this other perspective start with the anand marriage rights and then do your traditional marriage rights so it's kind of interesting actually in the context of today with all this kind of stuff about um inter-religious marriage and all that kind of stuff gobin singh was pretty clear on it he said do the anand rights and do your tradition your traditional rights but anyway um, I say all of that to say that Ajit Singh comes from uh, this more traditionalist perspective um, in the terms of this more syncretic perspective. And he makes comment in his autobiography about these voluntary groups like Arya Samaj, like Singh Sabha, um, as basically, I. You know, new sort of filters for these id, these thought streams, these, uh, for example, Sikh thought streams that reinforced sectarian boundaries because of their interpretations, uh, informed by their colonial, um, their injective of those ideas into the colonial framework. And I think it's really important to kind of keep our minds on that to sort of say, how like the this creation of this hindu nationalist idea is a creation it's a relatively modern creation absolutely there's sort of a primordial brahmanism that is a caste hierarchy that needs to be fought against absolutely there are backwards practices and these you know that we can look at and critique etc but i think it's important to remember that kind of pre-colonial syncretism to look at how to combat these forces because these hierarchical forces exist within the Sikh community and without the Sikh community, right? Or And outside of the Sikh community globally. So like at the same time that w- we resist these these ideas, we have to be internally critiquing how those same kind of, hierarchical structures might manifest within these resistance movements and these sectarian uh, divisive ideas might also manifest in these resistance movements and to be able to sort of honestly critique them um, without being uh, accused of being a secret uh, agent of the RSS, the militant uh, wing of the of the Hindutva, Hindu fascist BJP. Right. So, so um, I think that that's a, something that I, I really wanted to stress.
1: Now, there, there, I mean, this is a really layered discussion. And this is one yeah. of the reasons why I say that the discussion on Khalistan and the discussion on Sikh sovereignty and Sikh resistance movement is a lot more substantial than what we're discussing today. Yeah, um, It's a lot more layered. The, the institution... The elite institutions of India are highly the Brahman leading class, right, the ruling yes. class. On that basis, and there is you know, casteism is rife in India. In fact, in fact, it's the bedrock of India and why the, the hierarchical societies there, social stratification there is in India is largely caste based. Um, there's lots going on there, and I mean, honestly, I I cannot stress enough. This is just my go-to guide on any discussion on Khalistan. Any, part, any person that ever wants to discuss Khalistan or the Sikh resistance movements, I redirect them, redirect them instantly to the Anantopoulosite resolution. and Because you just take a closer look at Sikh demands and you start to see that it's, it's in favor of those. It's in the image of the oppressed. Uh, it's in the image of the lower caste. It's in the image. It's of those that are trying to relinquish themselves from any kind of struggle of poverty or or sexist or caste struggles. So, if you go to the Nandurbar resolution for one of the segments there that is dedicated is one of the political goals of the Nandurbar resolution of the Shilmoniya Kalita. And it says here, just once you read past the resolution number 12, it says the Sharmonia Khalidal strongly advocates that the growing gulf between the rich and the poor in the urban and rural areas on both should be abridged, but is in the firm opinion of that for such a purpose, the first assault would have been made on the classes who have assumed all the reins of the economic powers in their hands. In rural areas in the Qali Dal are determined to help the weak classes like the scheduled castes, backward classes, landless tenants, ordinary labourers, the poor and middle class farmers. For such a purpose, it stands for more meaningful land reforms, which envisage a ceiling of 30 standard acres and the distribution of excess land among the poor farmers. The entire document is framed uh, in favor of those that are constantly being disenfranchised in this post-colonial uh, p- uh, political integration project of what we now know and call India, like it's such it's the bedrock of Sikh resistance that we are currently facing today against the Indian state.
2: You know, and that's I think that that just needs to be stressed again and again and again. Um, I don't know. I don't have enough information. I think that there's probably plenty of of questions you know i mean uh and um you know just like questions and fearful ideas about that movement about the Khalistan movement um that have been implanted uh into the minds of most including like myself i i know that um it's still a subject uh that i need to do a lot more reading on to 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 better understand but i think it's really important to focus on sort of the the radical position from which it's coming it's also really important to talk about yeah i mean you know look it's not that like you know we look at like the the 1990s and and previously to that we look at you know different movements throughout uh Sikh history where where Sikhs are targeted by the Indian state, right? I mean, we have 1984. um, Of course, you know, we have the destruction of the Harmandir Sahib. And um, and and that whole event rises from uh, a sort of a. It's obviously complex, but it it rises out of, you know, firmly Making the demands that are rooted in the Annapurseib resolution, as you've read, and those demands are, you know, transreligious and and uh, uh, you know, pa- you know, trans kind of boundary, state boundary, right? As as we can see, they're rooted in kind of a philosophy of taking care of the downtrodden and the oppressed, uh, and that is the stand that that leads to the conflict in which uh the harmunders or the ukultucket is des- destroyed in Operation Blue Star, subsequently, you know, in in a a use of the kind of otherization and the um fear-mongering of the Sikhs and Sikh identity by the state, as if you you know anybody has listened to the first episode of this show will know. Um you know, where that kind of fear and, and misunderstanding um, was used to mobilize uh, people to go kill thousands of Sikhs over the course of three days in, in November of 1984. And then subsequently after that, you have tens of thousands of, of killed um, over the course of the, the late 80s and nine into the 90s. As a part of a continuing, more militant resistance movement that saw um, active military resistance to the state as as justified because of the oppression that had been wrought on the Sikhs, and um, and then you also see uh, 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 like these extrajudicial killings of young um, young Sikhs and seek political leaders because uh, by by uh the police and internal uh inter- intelligence and security forces where you have you know same thing in kashmir where you have these you know countless stories of you know if you if you were found to have, have killed a, a, somebody that had been labeled as a militant in the police force um, it was a great way to get promotions and et cetera, et cetera. So you have these perverse incentives to, um, you know, murder extrajudicially young Sikh men, whether or not they were involved in any kind of a movement um, for the to climb the ranks of the uh, of the, the military and, and police establishment. And so, you know, it, it, there. it's it's there's a lot there's a lot to to read about and to learn about here but I think remembering the root demands of that movement are very important Um, I'd like to shift gears a little bit uh, and talk about a couple of things so there's a tendency so I, I, I we talked about before we I did read the introduction before we started recording that there's been some controversy or some sort of, um, yeah, I don't know, uh, a, a, yeah, I guess controversy around your, um, identifying as a Marxist socialist. Um, can you maybe characterize like what that controversy is as you understand it and, and talk about that a little bit?
1: I think the idea is, uh, largely a bit troubling because it's, it's, if you identify as a sick, you know, that in itself is who you are and authentically aligned with, and it's all encompassing. So for instance, you you know, when you, when you first say you you are either a Marxist or an anti-capitalist and you come from this school of thought, which a lot of Sikhs have described me as, um, I, at first, I'm like, okay, that's perfectly true. I come from this uh, economical uh, resistance to capitalism. In this school of thought, it's what I've been raised with, and it's the literature that I've read, right? And then the more closely you start to look into Sikh history, as I've done more recently, and started to look into actually a Sikh philosophy, it's enough to just say that you're a Sikh right. And it's enough to say that well, hang on. Being a Sikh is being maybe a feminist. Being a Sikh is being anti-capitalist because once you start to frame your discussion as a Sikh, aligned with Guru's hukam, you start to realise that you are naturally aligned to just causes, and therefore you start to it starts to become quite obvious that if you say you're a Sikh, then there should be. Uh, troubles trying to align yourselves with capitalism right if you start to say you are a sick you should automatically be aligned with those that are suffering in the israeli-palestinian conflict you know whether you're siding with the israeli state and the palestinian populace right or the british occupation of ireland and how the irish revolutionaries are taking on the british even to this day right how Ireland has become a police state when you start to Start to envision what it means to be a Sikh. there doesn't mean there doesn't need to be any kind of auxiliary definition sure. to who you are. I.e., like a Marxist or a feminist, and you start to realize that these identities attached to it are, are just are already encompassed in the vision of the Sikh, in the Guru's Sikh, and so that's when I was like, well, I in any in any other case, I would happily say I'm a Marxist Sikh. Sick, mm-hmm. right but i come from the school of thought but i start to realize that you know even when it comes to marxist philosophies on property rights and materialism you're like hang on you know Guru an honor david you said the same thing you know however many years ago before the before the conception of capital which was in the um, in, around the Industrial Revolution, I think the Industrial Revolution is something really defining in sick thought. We, we I think we underestimate it, and we don't write so much about it or 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 read on this into read into it so much. I mean, the Industrial Revolution really did uh, conceptualize this global capitalist project and a colonial warfare, you know, in terms of a transnational one, and especially in the arms race. I mean, even if you look at uh, six today, and one of the reasons why we're being left behind when it comes to the military prowess of the Sikh is largely because we're still practicing swords, right? Whereas the other nation states that are forming are practicing nuclear warfare. They've got, you know, fully automatic rifles and and they've got tanks, and that's their military prowess. And the Sikhs, uh, we're practicing gatka as if it's something of an ancient tradition to us, but really our arms race still exists today, and we should really be keeping up with that. And there's a lot of this that is actually happening, and it's not exclusively Sikh. It's across across the world actually, where native populations, where tribal populations are being left behind, where we've got these nation states that are being formed. Again, the nation state is also very new. Borders are a relatively new construct, uh, border enforcement, nation-state building, and it's all become part of this post-industrial, post-modern era that we've entered. And that's something that came in between, that's exactly kind of halfway between our Guru's period and us where we are today. And it's really reshaped radical Sikh thought, I believe, and where we stand and I think that there's not a lot of discussion on that. But that's where the Marxist philosophy really stems from. It kind of emerged and surfaced in response to a post-industrial era where we've got now large amounts of exploitation by ruling class elites and, and, and employers. And now, even today, where we've got um, tra- uh, transnational corporations that are suppressing you know, the global South with their projects and with their infrastructure and with their wage suppression and all these things that are basically leading and causing poverty, actually. But where do the Sikhs lie? Where do the Sikhs stand? And what is a Sikh position in a post-industrial setting? So a lot of me has come from a Marxist school of thought. But the more I started to read into Sikh history, I started to realize that the Sikh is the almost the ultimate identity that this is the this is a stance that you take for justice in whatever form it takes whatever whatever form of critical thought there is or narratives that the sick thought aligns with the image of the oppressed and that's something that i started to really recognize and i was like i'm more than I, i think it's more than sufficient to just be a sick in these cases. that's that's why I kind of brought
2: that up. I think that that's a really great, great point. And things that come to my mind uh, listening to that are often the way that I think about that is, is yes, like my, my fundamental identity as a Sikh uh, informs the mentality that draws me towards these uh, left ideas. Um, and these ideas are the way I see it is this the, the Sikhs are renowned in history for being really excellent um, uh, fighters, right? And and were known for using a wide variety of different types of weapons um, to combat uh, oppression. And now obviously I'm using a, a, a metaphor here uh, um, that is um, martial, and I don't wanna overstress that, but I just think it's kind of a useful idea to sort of say well you know the six themselves aside from if anybody's ever seen the sort of the claw weapon that you can wear sort of on the inside of your palm that allows you to like ra- that allows a, a soldier to rake another soldier's sort of um you know uh, uh, the the enemy's uh sensitive points uh with the inside of their hand in hand-to-hand combat that's a sick invention that's a weapon that they invented. Aside from that, the Sikhs didn't really invent any sort of like new types of swords or um, you know any anything that's quite uniquely Sikh. They were borrowed from uh, Persian uh, militaries and and other fighting forms and Mesopotamian, and Mesopotamian, right? And their um, and and the Sikh philosophy is very sort of you know it's unifying and so it says like let's what's the best way that we can use these things to accomplish the goal of of justice um and so they incorporated all these different styles and 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 whatnot um so it's not that they by adopting these weapons that they became not anything other than seek it's just that they were using them to to fight right so to me like um left ideas are tools they're their own sort of thought weapon for identifying um systems of oppression and there's a really wide array of left thought that you know where you find problems with say um you know marxism uh very specifically sort of like Marx's writings and problematic ideas that he has about women, and problematic ideas that they that he has about uh, minorities and stuff like that. Well, there's there's critiques within left thinking that critique those things. You find, you know, problems in left thinking about say you know Lenin and, and democratic centralization and kind of a centralized state that we see with the USSR. And well, well, there's a lot of left thinking that critiques that as well from like a an anarchist perspective, etc. And so. These are avenues of thought for sort of evaluating modern society that we don't have like a a deep critiqued writing of exactly how to identify oppressions um, in the post-industrial world that come directly from the gurus because obviously they existed before that. But we have the principles that we use to identify oppression. And and then a more and then sort of intricate tools to help us to further identify and to further formulate oppositions to those forms of oppression, right? And also it allows us to build solidarity with people that are sympathetic or have similar, um, you know, understandings of how a society and a global a global society can and should function. For the justice and, and benefit of all people, um. So I think that, you know, there's not really a dichotomy that needs to be made. It's like you're a, you can be sick and you can be Marxist. You're not you're not you know bowing to you're not putting uh you know das capital in in Rumale and and doing like uh you know uh, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> doing take to it or anything. You're. You're sitting there and reading it and going oh yeah like this ultimate philosophy that i literally like bow my head to is being supported and being uh given uh, an intellectual um support by these types of thinking this type of thinking that comes from all different types of people throughout history and it's actually very it's very liberating and it's very it's very cool another thing that comes to mind is what, as you were talking um, is a is is about or connected to that idea is if we look at our own historical predecessors, the Sikh gurus, and and other Sikhs, maybe during or after the the Guru period, they didn't only investigate Sikh texts for inspiration for um, political or intellectual in, enrichment. They were you know it's not like like literally, the 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 city guru Granth Sahib is founded on. I mean, Guru Nanak's revelations and his ideas. But he goes back and he finds these pre-existing saints and he references them to put it in a kind of a modern perspective and says, "Look, these are ideas. These guys they existed a couple hundred years before I did. Here's the same ideas. You know what I mean? We bow." to Hindu and Sufi poetry um, that is rooted in these same philosophies. And so there's no, I think that if you have a, a clear connection to these ideas of justice, of unity, et cetera, you can find that truth in a multitude of other texts and sources to use for inspiration, analysis, motivation, et cetera. Guru Gobind Singh himself translated the Bhagavad Gita into Punjabi, called it the Govind Gita, you can look this up, and he recommended for his Sikhs to read it, to help understand concepts that it lays out in there. He also um, he also uh, references, I forget the name of this book, but it was a very common book. Um, that any sort of politically minded uh, Indian ruler would read at that time and had read for generations leading up to it. And I'm forgetting who wrote it, but I think it even comes out of like the Ashokan period or something like that. It's a really ancient text. And he looks back and he reads it and he uses it. and and we have to imagine, I mean, the man was Singh himself was a was a scholar. He was somebody with a wide variety of of um knowledge and um, and skills like languages, etc. Also, another thing to look at that I, I often is I think about is is this as critical as the sick movement can and should be of external forms of oppression it can and should be internally critical of its own structures that can manifest its own forms of oppression where we find examples of this right Um, Guru Gobind Singh in part of creating the Khalsa, he did away with the ancient uh, Masand system. The Masand system was a form of um, kind of like uh, kind of loose governance in a way that um, where the Guru, I believe it was, I believe it was Guru Ramdas instituted the um, the fourth Guru instituted the Masand system. I might be wrong. That basically um these representatives of the guru would go out you know kind of go out to these different places or maybe they were existing leaders within communities and they would be kind of a liaison between the community and the and the guru right so it was kind of a centralized um model right and what happens is is you know this centralized model creates oppression which is where these people that are given a hierarchical status are allowed to collect taxes, they're allowed, or like kind of donations to contribute to the sick broader Sikh movement, and they sort of act as like a proxy to the Guru. Guru Gobind Singh sees this problem because these guys start to get out of hand, they, they you know, the power and the hierarchical structure goes to their head, Generale- generationally it's passed down, and he says, look, we're off that, right? You know, uh, 1698, we're off the Masons. 1699, we're on the Khalsa now. And, you know, what that critique and what he creates in its place is he he does some really radical things. So, you know, whether you believe the literal um, sort of events of creation of the Khalsa or if you believe uh, like a metaphorical Uh, you know, events of the creation of the Khalsa, I think is not that, that is a matter of sort of personal faith and understanding. But what ultimately is created is a system where Guru Gobind Singh says, the consciousness of the Guru can be found when five dedicated Sikhs get together and, and like uh, get together to, to like talk uh, uh, sort of a modern under like way. I look at it in a way and, and this, you know, people might take offense to this. It's like creating a working group in like a left, uh, a left uh, philosophy where it's anti hierarchical. What does Guru Gobind Singh do when he first creates the Khalsa? He, he asks them to give him the initiation and bows to them. He actually, Um, flattens the hierarchical structure of the Khalsa of the Sikhs I think in that movement and what he makes the what he makes sit on top of the hierarchical structure is the liberatory philosophy itself rather than any person or individual identity and 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 he he and so these are things that we can can find correlation to In in broader movements that go against hierarchy and against like top down structures and make practice liberatory practice V Vic is the goal in and of itself and and another kind of thing to connect to that is. He the gurus did not shy away from breaking tradition right they were progressive they held on to the core structures but they said when they identified some something bad they they within their own structure they critiqued it and they fought against it right we have you know we have even stories of the gurus themselves of guru Tegbha, that are being denied entry into the harmander Sahib, and and ultimately that same system uh that denied Guru Tegh Bahadur entry is the thing that Guru Gobind Singh, you know, works towards changing. And um, I think that that sort of self-reflective, critical um, mentality is really important because what can we look at within our own Sikh communities, even in ones where people are really connected to this broader resistance movement that seeks to ameliorate the um, lot of the downtrodden, we can still find patriarchal ideas, we can still find um, uh, caste ideas that are still manifesting themselves uh, and and a whole lot of other structures that are manifesting themselves and without a really good critical framework to identify these problems and to be self-reflective, these sort of things can perpetuate themselves simply in the name Of tradition, as opposed to understanding that actually what our tradition is, is progressive, is self-reflective, is self-critical, and inwardly looking, and and unabashedly destroys structures that perpetuate any form of oppression. And and so, you know, I tie that to homophobia in, in the Sikh community. I tie that to um, patriarchy in the Sikh community. I tie that to um, any kind of hierarchical structure that reinforces itself. It's really useful to look at left some left philosophies to understand how those mentalities still populate and colonize our own minds and how they perpetuate themselves within our own movements and communities. And there should be absolutely nothing wrong with, with um, just being critical. Um, and, and, and the anti critical nature of a lot of the time of what we see in, especially like seek, you know, social media and stuff like that. of anybody that comes out with a, a critical response to almost anything, um, can often be shouted down and, and, um, You know, perhaps understandably so, because people have been so on the defense for for a long time. But, you know, I think that it's really important to create an atmosphere where people feel like they can approach this thing and where you're constantly reaffirming the core principles rather than any kind of external or um, divisive signifiers as symbols of your allegiance to these principles I,
1: I, I think this is a really good um, point to not only close off our, close off our discussion but also kind of suggest what we'll be talking about next um, mm. and I hope I hope we can do this soon because I remember when we the discussions that we've had out of this podcast especially, Uh, about the relations between Sikhs and white Sikhs. And this is something Mm. that I really wanted to touch upon um, in this discussion, but also I think it deserves a whole nother podcast about what is the Sikh philosophy and where do Sikhs stand and what is the contention between Punjabi Sikhs and white Sikhs? Mm. And what is this kind of criticism or evaluation that we have, uh, in terms of the racial dimension of being a sick and the discussions that we've had and our experiences and what we came to a conclusion especially about our personal lives is that we are somewhat uh, the parallel selves of each other so <laughs> right especially where we stand on a lot of these issues uh, politically and economically speaking but I mean the uh, we we are both born sick we are both practicing Sikhs, and in essence, the only difference between you and I is that is is that pigmentation of our skin, right? Right. However, there are obviously uh, contentions and a lot of problematic uh, disputes between Sikh Punjabi Sikh thought and white, predominantly North American Sikh thought, right? Mm-hmm. And where where we stand on that, and that's something that, especially what you said about the universal truth and the universal values of Sikh teachings, and what is what it kind of transcends race right yeah so what what is it that causes some this friction and where does it come from and we had a discussion a personal discussion on the phone a lot about and we came to a lot of kind of introspective truths about ourselves Mm. and the communities that we come from and and we just felt like it deserved a whole other podcast and yeah i don't know about you but i'm really looking forward to having that discussion
2: yeah, me too. I think that there's a there's a lot to talk about there. Um, you know, I, I think that what we can I, what we can do that very as soon as soon as we're able. Um, and uh, I, I think that there's a lot to talk about. And I I I guess what maybe is worth saying right now is is sort of to say that um, it ties back into all of these. Um, ideas of division um, and and perception. Um, I think that something that I like to say a lot is that like race is not real, but racism is, right? So there are not um, these inherent characteristics that you can assign to people. uh, These intrinsic uh, natures that you can assign to people based on their pigmentation, um, right? Uh, there are, though, perceptions and ideas that are f- actively foisted upon people uh, of different pigmentations. So, um, you know, whiteness is is only real in so much as a creation of the ideas of white supremacy and um color is only a real like category in a framework that is racist, right? Our rate quote unquote racial divisions and differences you know, that are somehow connected to our skin colors are obviously false and I think we can talk a lot about that. Um, but there is also a lot to talk about sort of when you don't have an awareness of, like what white supremacy is and how nefarious and how really sinisterly like it it can it is colonizes all people's minds um because because it's not just about white versus people of color it's also about you know you you talk about sort of fairness versus darkness in india even in the black community you have discussions about you know people of lighter and darker skin colors etc so this these ideas manifest racial subjugation in so many different realms and are rooted and connected to other hierarchical ideas that reinforce the divisions and reinforce the hierarchy and oppression And and they're inextricably linked and they predate even the concept of whiteness. Like you have ideas of sort of hierarchies that predate, say, white supremacy, but they are rooted in in similar things and we can find connections between them. Um, And when you're not aware of them, you can be a really good person and you can mean really well and you can you know, be earnest and honest and, and how you live your life. But if you're not aware of these, the way that these oppressive mentalities colonize minds, you can be enacting them on a regular basis. Um, and and I think that that's really worth talking about. Yeah.
1: I'm almost perpetuating the very thing that you are trying to avoid. Right. Absolutely. But yeah, that's definitely a discussion. And we we've had so many discussions about other things as well. Um, I don't know. I, I really enjoy talking about these things and working on this article on sick resistance was something that really, I discovered a lot about myself, to be honest, and how much I really didn't know on where on what it means to be a sick, to be honest. And mm. what's interestingly, more interestingly, as you know, I've moved to Denmark and I'm in a very, very white majority state here right and being a sick and the first thing i've been reaching out for is the sanghat and something that's really kind of touched my heart about what it means to be a sick in somewhere that's either unknown or where you are very sincerely the minority and there's a lot of other discussions that we i think we should have um definitely in terms of where we lie on that spectrum in society as kind of minorities and yeah, what, what it means to be a sick in that respect, because I, both of us have kind of discovered that for ourselves in personal discussions outside of this podcast, but it's something definitely we can have for the future.
2: So thank you so, so much for doing this. And before we go, um, can you tell people where to find you online? yeah so the
1: majority of a lot of the work that i do is on instagram so that's at sick talk s i k h t a l k or as you mentioned earlier in the beginning uh something a new project i've started which is only like a year old is sick archive where i'm collecting and documenting uh, historical imagery of Sikh migration and sick sick movements across the globe from argentina to six in ecuador to six in Fiji, Australia, and so on and so forth. There's a lot going on with that project where I'm just documenting and collecting and archiving sick imagery, and it's a really interesting project. So that's at, at mm. Sick Archive on Instagram as well. It's also got a website www.sickarchive.co.uk, um, and people can offer their personal uh, collections. As you mentioned, it's a it's a grassroots collective. It's a, it's it's a crowdsourced images. It's really helpful. And a lot of people are going on board. So that's where you can reach me for sure.
2: Um, and we will definitely have more episodes together. I think that this has been very fruitful. Um, will people be able to read this article online somehow?
1: Yeah. So as I mentioned, it's for Consented Magazine. And yeah. as soon as they release their edition, which I'm not sure when the release date is, but as soon as they do... Uh, we can certainly share it on that website and our Instagram feeds and social media and trying to let people know that it's there, it exists for sure.
2: So uh, if you, to stay looped in to finding that uh, when it comes out, you can do that in a few different ways. You can follow uh, Sakraj on social media. You can follow me on social media. I'm at Shabad.1one on Instagram, at Singh on Twitter, Um, and, uh, and I also have on the website at theonepodcast.com, um, a newsletter that you can subscribe to. So when that comes out, I'll send out a, a link, uh, via the newsletter. But if you're listening, this is the most important thing for me, for us, for this program. If this was of use to you, if this was inspiring to you, if you want to hear more content like this. The way is to, on, on the website at onepodcast.com at the bottom of the page, there are multiple links on multiple pla- uh, podcasting platforms, be it um, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, etc. Please go to the respective one according to the device that you have um, and subscribe because that helps boost the metrics of the show, helps people find us. and. If you're an Apple Podcast listener, please go and comment and rate the show, five-star reviews only. Otherwise, if you don't do it, if you don't do five-star reviews, you're against uh, the one and uh, we will not accept it. Uh, And uh, (laughs) I'm also incredibly sensitive. Um, No, but really, please, uh, if, if you so feel inclined, Uh, give us a comment and like a review and a rating and please share it on your social media and just get it out there because I think that these conversations are of a lot of um, use to people and uh, yeah just want to spread the word about the show so thanks uh, so much everybody for listening and participating Um, and last thing before we go um, the first three episodes are in, in the, the books. All three of my guests have been men. I am a man. Uh, I am, a, I am a, a socialist feminist. I believe in the progressive stack. If you don't know what that is, uh, check it out. It's a very cool idea. I want um, female voices, uh, femme voices to be heard on this show. If these ideas are vibing with you and you can think of um, female uh, Sikh or non-Sikh intellectuals that are talking about this realm of things are talking about um, India or, or Sikh history uh, Punjabi history, South Asian history, etc. And you think that they'd be a uh, useful um, a voice that you'd like to hear sort of in talking in this context, please point them in this direction. Please reach out to me. If you yourself are, uh, you know, identify with that. Um, I want this to be a platform that is not just dudes talking anyway. Thanks everybody. And see you next time.